one here. All right. That's Hebrews 9.18. It says, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. This is a legal conclusion from what we studied last week in verses 16 and 17 about a death um, inaugurating or bringing into effect a covenant. In this case, the death was the death of Christ, and the covenant which is put into effect is the new covenant, which we've been studying in this chapter. The new covenant is uh, in his blood. And so, we talked last week about the fact that in the Old Testament, and especially in the ancient Near East, when they made a solemn covenant, they would cut a cow in two pieces, lay the pieces one side and another, and then the two parties would walk through the pieces and say, may God do to me what happened to this cow if I don't keep my word. That would keep your, get your attention, wouldn't it? So you better mean it. Um, and that kind of a covenant was, we, we looked at the one that God made with Abraham where they had the two pieces of the cow. And the interesting thing about the one with Abraham is Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a theophany, a manifestation of God, went through the pieces. And the reason for that was that this was a unilateral covenant, that the keeping of the covenant with Abraham was dependent on God alone, not on Abraham. And that covenant in particular had to do with the people, a people and a land. So that's how we know that Israel still belongs to the descendants of Abraham. Because God made a solemn covenant with the cutting of the calf and said, and wasn't dependent on Abraham. It's a unilateral covenant. So that's why Israel's in the land today. There are those who are saying, well, you know, Israel doesn't deserve to be in the land because they're rebelling against God because they won't submit to Messiah. Yeah, yeah, I'd say um, they're not there because they deserve to be. They're there because God keeps His promises, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we're going to get anywhere with God, it's never good because we deserve it. So, all right. So then, so a covenant is inaugurated with blood. Now we have here a double negative. See, other languages don't have the same rules. In English, this is not how you would want to construct a sentence. Not inaugurated without blood. We would say it was inaugurated with blood. The meaning is the same. All right. So the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Looking back to the sacrifices of the old covenant. So there's a legal relationship. And this legal relationship that is expressed by a covenant is between the Lord and his people. So the two parties are God and the people who would be entering into the covenant. Now, in the case of the Old Covenant, the one that is being discussed in particular in the book of Hebrews is the the Mosaic Covenant, because it's talking about the tabernacle and contrasting Moses with Jesus, the tabernacle on earth with the tabernacle in heaven, the blood of the Old Covenant with the blood of Jesus. So there's a contrast going on throughout these chapters of Hebrews all of which are saying that the new is better in every regard. We have a better Moses. We have a better house. We have better sacrifices. Uh, we have a better, better promises. 
So anything that you can think that goes along with the covenant is better in the new covenant. Why? So, you know, there's a lot of chapters of Hebrews about this. And I always say God doesn't waste ink. And when he inspires the Bible, it's, it's there for, everything's there for a reason. So this is obviously an important topic. And in the case of the historical situation, it was important because people were wanting to go back to the Jewish priesthood and the Jewish way of doing things. And one of the reasons, as we've said before, that they wanted to go back because it was more real, quote unquote. You could go see if the temple was still standing. It was very magnificent, the, the, the second temple that Herod had restored for the Jews. It was a beautiful place. And the ceremonies that attended the, the temple services were very striking, very beautiful. The high priest's robes, the, the whole thing. And people gravitate to that. People just love pomp and circumstance. They love cathedrals and fancy, huge pipe organs and anything you can do to make it look magnificent that's attractive to people. PowerPoint, yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, that's a, that's a communication device. But the point is that um, put yourself back in, in your mind, back into the 60 AD or whenever this was written. All right, and think about it. What the, at that point, Christians had no buildings. There, were, there wasn't. There were. There were no big, magnificent church to go to. There was no stained glass windows. There was no steeples. There was no pews. They just met wherever they could meet in homes, wherever they could possibly gather. They didn't own any property. They didn't have a high priest. They didn't have. Um, any of this glory that, that the temple had. And so, it was very tempting for these early Christians to think, well, this just really isn't that great. So, given that, the book of Hebrews is saying that the glory that we have is heavenly. And though we can't see it, it's just as real. And it's far more splen- greater splendor, far greater glory, far greater reality than this temporary, temporal one that the Jewish high priest has. But how do we know that? Right. So we, But we only know it by faith, because not by sight. Faith is a substance of things not seen. So therefore, we have a legal binding relationship between the Lord and His people. The covenant has been instituted with blood, and it's a better covenant. So... Well, where should we start? How about in the middle here? Norm, could you read Exodus 12:22? Okay, that was the that was that was the Exodus, right? Yeah. So they they dipped the blood, and uh, there was blood that attended that covenant. Let's go to verse 19, Hebrews 9:19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So here we have uh, blood that had to do with this institution of the Old Covenant. And 
according to my notes here, we have an allusion to or a discussion of what happened in Exodus 24, 3 through 8. So let's all turn to that. Exodus 24, 3 through 8. By the way, this thing I was discussing earlier about wanting something visible that looks great and is astounding, you know, or seems very high and holy. That's always true because it's just human nature that people are attracted to such things. And you can start a false religion by suggesting that there are some sort of holy objects or uh, anything that would appeal to people just in basic pagan superstitions. And one of the things that is happening now in the church is called the emerging church. Have you heard about that one? Somebody's always got to have a new one. Well, they're they're using this idea. They're they're making they're playing off of this desire for some sort of a sort of like the Greek Orthodox Church does. Um, they create a, a kind of a mystical feeling by using. Um, certain lighting, turning all the lights off and having candles and having certain sense of music and mystique. And they create this sort of a mystical idea of a, of a mystique. And it's very attractive to people in their early 20s. And some of these churches have grown very, very rapidly. And what's that? Well... Yeah, you create you create an aura or a, yeah. Right. The, but here's that's that there there I guess the crux of the problem. I was reading a thing Christianity Today where where the founder or one of the key founders of this movement is a guy named McLaren, I think it is. Who basically says, well, people don't want objective truth. They don't want to hear preaching and uh, stuff like that. They want, so you invite them to a relationship. And so you feel nice, a lot of warm fuzzies, and, and you don't preach to them. You don't say, thus saith the Lord, repent and believe the gospel. Because they don't like to hear it that way. And so it ends up getting down to the same issue it always does, which is gospel preaching. Whether we're going to try to attract people in by some means that works for whatever culture we happen to live in, or we're going to preach the gospel and let God put people in the church through conversions. Um, and God adds to the church. Amen. And so really this whole thing really is right back to the issue of the seeker movement and everything else. Are we going to preach the gospel or are we going to give people what they want to hear? Well, yes. Emerging. It's called the Emerging Church. Uh, Brian Flynn did a bunch of research on it and actually talked to some of the leaders of it, and so you can ask him about it. It isn't, the basic concept, as Keith was saying, is it doesn't have to be bad. In other words, if they, if they don't have pews, they've got couches, they don't have, I mean, you could do all of the stuff they're doing. You can have candles, couches, soft music, dim lighting, and preach the gospel. Amen. All right. Yeah. What? And and Brian Flynn said, yes, some do. Some of the people he talked to were were committed to the gospel. So we can criticize that. But if you do all these other things to get people in without the gospel, then you got a huge problem. 
Well, those used to be popular. Everything comes back around. Yeah. Exactly. So the church is to be the called out ones, and the way people are added to the church is through conversions, not through being brought into a building by a certain type of enticement uh, without the gospel. So there's nothing wrong with in, in the context of gospel preaching. We do that. We go out here and cook hamburgers and hot dogs. Well, we found out the hamburgers work even better because it creates a, because the smoke, yeah, the smoke goes out and the smell of the, of the, of the, uh, Norm here works really hard. He's, he really sweats over those hamburgers. And the aura of the hamburger goes out across the street and the people are drawn in. But when they get here, they get damned. <laughs> <laughs> they get Dan, Dan telling them they need to repent. <laughs> yeah, I Paul would Paul. This is very Pauline to believe that way because everything that mattered to him was the gospel, whether he's preaching it in prison or whether he's doing it in a synagogue or Marzil, wherever, wherever, in whatever context. The gospel is the key thing, not anything else. And so the reason I'm willing to go out and debate and have put on seminars and write articles and go public with a dispute against the seeker movement is because it's about the gospel. It's about whether we're ashamed of the gospel or we're not, or we're not ashamed of the gospel. All right, now back to Exodus 24, 3 through 8. <coughs> It says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. <laughs> well, they had the right idea. Now, if you, read, if you read the Old Testament, it didn't turn out that way did it, for the most part. But they agreed. Now, when, when there's a covenant, there are terms to the covenant. And the parties have to agree to the terms. So when Moses read the words of the Lord, that, that's the terms of the covenant. And when the people said, we agree, they are agreeing with those terms. They can't come back later and say, we didn't know any better. Uh, we signed. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and it's specific revelation, it's specific written moral law that governs this people. And it was, it, you didn't have to be a mystic to figure out what it was. It's, it was written down. They didn't come to a mountain that they couldn't hear. God said, from the mountain itself, these are my ten commandments. Yeah, and they made a golden calf. All right, so they, they said, all the words of the Lord have spoken, we'll do. So they agreed to the covenant. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made um, with you in accordance to all these words. That's pretty solemn, wouldn't you say? That is the old covenant. Now, the book of Hebrews is telling us that the new covenant was also instituted or inaugurated with blood. And that we have entered into a solemn covenant as well. The blood of the new covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ. What are the words that we're agreeing to? Are there words of the new covenant like the old? What do you think? The God, we're believing the gospel and we're accepting as authoritative the words of Christ. Yeah, the, the whole... And what are the words of Christ as far as we're concerned? The red letters? In, in the Bible? <laughs> there are some people who have actually tried to make that claim that the only authoritative words are the red letters in your Bible. But that's, that's, that's not true. We believe that, the, that Christ's authoritative apostles who wrote on his behalf are also giving us the words of Christ. So the entire New T- Testament... Yes, uh, Ryan. To teach. Yeah, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is the words of God in the Scripture. So we have a written document that we're agreeing to. The words of Christ now are greater than the words of Moses, although the Old Testament is inspired. But we have this in, Christ is the authoritative interpreter of Moses. Norm, you sent me an essay about that, didn't you? He, he Norm, you mailed me an essay that that made that claim. I thought it was a very solid, very good idea that Christ is the authoritative interpreter of, of Moses. Yeah. So, so if you take the totality of the Scriptures, with the old understood in light of the new, you have the words of the covenant that are binding. Right? Now, we're denying that there are any authoritative prophets since the, the, the time of the New Testament that can add to these words. Right? We're, we deny that any man on the earth can say, thus saith the Lord, and all Christians are bound to what that man says. You can't add to the words of the covenant. If you add to them, is that bad? <laughs> That's a bad thing if you add to them. Well, there's, there's been people throughout church history who have taken upon themselves to add to the words of the covenant and claim those new words to be binding. That's part of the reason for the Reformation, was to reject that approach. 
Luther says no to the traditions of man being binding. Okay, so we have the same idea. So we have a new covenant in his blood. Now some scriptures here. Uh, well, let's get some people in the back row a chance here. Uh, uh, Daniel, Psalm 57.1. Judith, Isaiah 52.15. Pat, Ezekiel 36.25. Diane, 1 Peter 1.2. And um, Joanne, Matthew 27.28. Okay, Psalm 57 1. Psalm 57 1. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Okay. I don't know why I had that one. But that's a good verse. I have no idea why I had that in my notes. But take refuge in the Lord. We, we love all the verses. Isaiah 52, 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. He who will shut their mouths on account of them, that what have not destroyed them, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Yeah, there is a fantastic prophecy in Isaiah 52 which says he will sprinkle many nations. Now this idea of sprinkling, the word there had um, the connotation of this sort of covenant terminology you know, of their sprinkling for purification in the Old Testament. And so when it says that he, now this is the servant of Yahweh, this prophesied in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, the servant of Yahweh will sprinkle many nations. Now imagine in the Old Testament, they couldn't have, what, what's that? The, how the goyim are going to be sprinkled? They're unclean. So what does that mean? Well, we're finding out here in the New Covenant, yes. Yeah. Right. And so there's a new covenant, and it is in the sprinkling is the blood of Christ, and this sprinkling, what does what? Makes people clean that they might come into God's presence. Now, the Old Testament had happened externally, and the New Testament is internal. We're clean from the inside out. Amen. Right? So we got a better covenant. Now, Ezekiel 36.25. Okay, so sprinkling makes one cleansed from idols. It's suitable to go into God's presence. 1 Peter 1 2. That you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. The gospel is something to be obeyed, by the way. Yeah. Paul said in Romans that I might bring about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. Yeah, we can use the term invitation. There is an invitation because it says come, um, you know, in the end of uh, Revelation, toward the end. It invites people to come. But it's it's more than an invitation. It isn't an invitation where a no answer is suitable. 
Okay? It's, in a sense, it's a command to repent and believe. Because Paul says that God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. So, the Gospel is an invitation, but it's an invitation that if you reject it, you're in big trouble. Remember the parable of the wedding guests? All right? They were invited, and they, they all had one excuse or another, and they didn't want to come to the marriage. Amen. So they went out into the highways and byways, found the whoever, ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> David's mighty army, everyone discontent, everyone in debt, everyone distressed. That's, that's who the Lord chooses. Okay, um, so Matthew 27, 28. Yes, that, the scarlet, that's the same word used here in Hebrews 9, 19. And scarlet was uh, expensive. And it was the, it was the dress of royalty. Yeah, and the Moses there was scarlet wool that they talked about here. Yeah, so that was a, so this happens with Christ. Of course, they did it to mock him, and it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that they're mocking him, saying, "What kind of look at look at your king? He's got this crown, thorns. He's got this robe." And they were making fun and ridiculing him. Pointing, why were the Romans doing this? Because well, this is the they hated the Jews. Oh, so the Jews were going to have a king. Look at your king. And they were mocking Jesus Christ. And little do they know that he really is the king. You know, in a greater way than they could have possibly known. All right, Hebrews 9 and verse 20. Saying, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And it can't help but cause us to remember the words of institution that Jesus uttered at the Last Supper. This is the blood. I think, uh, Dick, could you look up Mark 14.24? I think that's where that's from. That's in the New Testament. <laughs> They're losing a chance. <laughs> We've got to gotta make things tough on Dick. Okay. This is the my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many. Now, does anybody know why it says many there? I think there's an Old Testament allusion. I, I knew Ryan was going to answer. What, tell us about it, Ryan. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Tell, Isaiah 53 uses the term the many. And that's what Jesus is alluding to when he talks about this blood that's poured out for the many. The many. So he will justify the many. Whoever is redeemed. And so when Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for the many, he's calling to mind 
the promise of Isaiah 53.11. They don't justify it. So this is justification. Yeah, Romans 5 also talks about the many. Um, this often gets discussed in the debate about um, the extent of the atonement, right? Um, whether the atonement is limited or unlimited. These, this term comes up and it gets debated, people on both sides of it. What does it mean? No. And all, road, all roads don't lead to heaven, no. The, the many would be those who are actually come by faith and have their sins washed away. All right? So, it's, so there again, you're, you're saying that his blood wasn't shed for everyone here in the world. All right. Well, let, or, or let me rehearse it again. We've talked about this a number of times, and there are not everybody here even agrees with me on this, and that's okay. The, 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 the debate is over whether the atonement is limited or not limited. The people who teach unlimited atonement say that Jesus' blood was shed for everyone's sin in the whole world. All right? Without exception. Every person without exception. Limited atonement says, though, it was poured out for the redeemed. Just those who actually will ultimately make up the church. Now, as I've entered into the debate, I've, I've pointed out over and over again, everyone, in some sense, other than universalists, do believe in some sort of limited atonement. Because if everybody's sins were actually atoned for, everybody would be in heaven. Because the atonement is effectual and it accomplished what it's supposed to do. If your sins are atoned for, then you're saved. So if you believe that it's unlimited in an absolute sense, then you're a universalist. And you believe everybody's saved. And since most people involved in the debate are evangelical, they'll deny universalism. So I say, to, I say, well, then you believe in a limited atonement anyhow, so why are you mad at me? <laughs> and, and so then they back up enough to say, well, we believe it's unlimited potentially. Yeah. And well, then we, then I'd say, well, I agree with the universal call also. I believe that God's commanding all men everywhere to repent. So why are we disagreeing? Well, it all boils back to, to the doctrine of election, whether you believe God chose us or we choose God, and then you're right back where you started. So that's that debate in a nutshell. <laughs> okay? But, oh, <laughs> ask Ryan. <laughs> what is it we believe? Right. Amen. I've told my Armenian friends, and I do have Armenian friends, I think that they're misguided, but they're my friends. And I say, if you will agree to preach the gospel as it is in the Bible, in fact, we'll, we'll do it with you. We'll help you. And we do, I do, we work with a thing called Hands Across the City where we go out and preach the gospel. And they think I'm the odd duck in that whole group. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, you've heard them talking. Oh, Bob DeWay, I would. But anyhow, if we can agree to preach the gospel to everybody, then the, then the people that are going to be saved will be saved by that means, whether you believe it was their free will choice or God's grace that did it, uh, and they'll end up in heaven. And 
when, when it's all said and done, people will find out what the truth is because everything will be known when we get in heaven. And they asked Spurgeon whether he thought Jacob Arminius was saved. And he says, well, I don't know, but if he is, he's not an Arminian anymore. Because <laughs> he's in heaven and he knows the truth. All right. Wasn't that the same for the Old Covenant? God made an agreement with them, but they still had the agreement covered all the Jews, but they still had to do as we did. They had to come by faith. They have to come by faith. Exactly. They could enter into the external covenant. Like they said, we'll do all the words. We swear we're into everything Moses said. That lasts about two days, just like our New Year's resolutions. And uh, But some of them actually believed, and they trusted, because salvation is always by faith, never by works. And those that believed were will be with them in heaven. They're part of the redeemed in the old covenant. Yes, Keith. There's another way to look at the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood was offered for your sins, but those who refuse it say, I won't take that blood. They're offended by the cross. They're offended by the cross. I won't take that blood. That blood does not atone for their sins because they refuse it. Right. On the scene of history, that's how it works out. And nobody can go claim there's any injustice to it. If they, if they heard the gospel and they refused it, when the day of judgment comes, I'm going to preach this morning. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that will be included people who refuse it now. Amen. They'll say, I know it's true now. I wish I would have repented. Yes. Right. And um, I, I think we usually, I like to use the word like sexual. It has sex. Right. Or, or even complete atonement. Uh, because, and I, I think there is a practical application here because if, if, if you believe that the atonement was completed at the cross, 100%, it was finished, you were sealed for and atoned for at the cross, then if, if, if you believe that you can look at the cross and only the cross, Anything else, if it was, if you have to add something to it, like, well, he, he, he unlocked the door, you need to go, you know, open the door and, or turn the knob and all that stuff, then it's, it's adding something to it. If you look at it, that the atonement was 100% completed by Christ, you can just stand at the, at the foot of the cross and you can that to it. Amen. Praise Amen. Well, that's the gospel. I have a quote, a citation from William Lane. Commentary. He, he's one of the finest writers of commentaries. Uh, William Lane. He has one on Mark and Hebrews. It's, the one in Hebrews is very is written for scholarly crowd, so it's a little hard to read. But it's worth. In my case, I dig through it to make sure I can understand it and explain it to somebody else. But he says this: Behold, the blood of the covenant shows that that the quotation has been brought into conformity with the Eucharistic words of Christ, perhaps under the influence of a local liturgical tradition. The citation thus conveys a veiled allusion to the institution of the Lord's Supper, which I agree with. This is a this is an allusion to the words of our Lord. This is the blood of the covenant. Um, and when it when it says in Mark for the many, that's an allusion to Isaiah. And the many would be from all nations, because we read earlier in Isaiah that he would sprinkle many nations. So this is not just for the Jews. This is for all nations. So it's universal in scope. Right? God is not excluding peoples. It's a, it's a universal call of the gospel 
But the blood does not remove anybody's sins unless they're actually believing the gospel. Amen. All right? Amen. Yes, Norm. Okay. Right. It's been paid. So if he paid the debt for everybody, they'd all be paid for. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way. Okay. Um, Richard, Zechariah 9 11. And um, Olga? Uh, Matthew twenty six twenty eight and Lonnie, do you want to do one? Hebrews thirteen twenty. <clears throat> you know, it's another interesting thing is as they're looking that up, we're talking about the blood atonement. That's one of the things that goes out in secret churches. If you read some of the most pop- the most popular secret document ever created was the Purpose Driven Life. You know, there's not even a close second out there. I mean, they've got, he, uh, Warren claims to be selling 25,000 books a day. Can you believe that? 25,000 books a day. Well, one of the things that's, that's not in the version of the gospel that's presented in there is the blood atonement. It is absolutely absent. Well, why is it absent? Because it's offensive to people. If you tell people that they're such miserable, wretched sinners that the only thing that God would have his own son crucified in order to avert God's wrath against their sin through a blood atonement, is that going to be popular? <coughs> Who wants to hear that? It's always been offensive. So you have to take it out. Now, the question we're trying to answer, I'm writing a book on this, is can you take out the blood atonement and still have a valid version of Christianity? No. Remission of sins. God said when he says no, no is no, and yes is yes. And Jeremiah yeah. said, God, this world is being right, wrong, and wrong, and wrong, right, wrong, right. And he says, I'm sick of it. So he sent one man, Jeremiah, against the whole nation. And that's the way it's going to be today. They have all their platitudes and all their garbage, but God's word's going to stand. I totally agree. But you know what? You're too narrow-minded. <laughs> this narrow-mindedness encompasses the world, but God so loved the world, and the God in me testifies how great He is. Amen. The man who's narrow. Keith. If you take out and remove the blood and the wrath of God, you end up with a truncated God, which gives you a truncated gospel with a truncated power to save and sanctify. Amen. Truncated means it's not all there, right? Yeah, you take this whole thing of making the gospel popular involves two things: taking things out, adding things in. And what's added in is what people like to hear. What's taken out is what they don't like to hear. Yes. Yeah, that's a bad thing. Exactly. Right. God alone has the right to describe himself to us. Amen. And we don't have the right to change that description because people don't like it. 
I highly recommend, if you haven't seen that, it's called The Hell's Best Kept Secret. We have it in our library by Ray Comfort. It's fabulous. Yes, Kathy. Okay. Richard, Zechariah 9-11. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, Okay, because of the blood of the covenant, the prisoners are set free. Matthew 26-28. The blood of the new covenant is called there. Right? Blood of the New Covenant. And in Hebrews 13.20. That's, yeah, that's the, we use that as a benediction, don't we? But what I like about that benediction is it mentions the blood. And the resurrection of Christ. That's gospel. That's a gospel benediction. Um, another quote from William Lane. The comparison of the blood by which the old covenant of Sinai was ratified with that of Christ clearly presupposes that the blood sprinkled by Moses had expiatory value. What's expiation? Yeah, Expiation? It has to do with averting God's wrath, I believe. Yeah, propitiation. I used to know the difference. Averting the wrath. That's it. So I had it backwards. Expiation is the removal. Propitiation is averting the just wrath of God against sin that would condemn us. One one is looking toward God as his as the angry judge, and the other is looking toward the sinner as the guilty one. So you have expiation and propitiation. What's that? Yeah, I know, I didn't go to college long enough. I thought I was too old the last time I went back. And that was over ten years ago. <laughs> okay, um, so the blood of the covenant we're talking about here. Is this important? Yes. Do Christians need to know it? Yes. Should it be preached from the, God, from the pulpit? Yes. Should we hide these things because people don't like this? It's too, too nasty. That, that's modernism. That's the 1920s and 30s and 40s. They actually went through hymnals and took references to the blood out. They, took, they, they went through and took the blood out of hymnals and a lot of the mainline Protestant denominations and redid the hymns or took the hymns out. And I didn't hear those things because I grew up in a liberal church. And when I got saved and I went into evangelical churches, the hymnals all of a sudden were singing songs I never heard. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Um, there's power in the blood. We sang that when I was... And we, and I thought, wow, I never heard any of these before. Well, why not? Because they'd been either 
never were there or they were gone. And they actually mocked our doctrine as slaughterhouse religion. What kind of what kind of a god would require the shedding of blood? They say, yes, Richard. Oh come on! Oh, oh! I gotta I gotta repeat that so I guess on this tape they had a song they used to say I was a sinner I sinned night and day, and now it's changed to I I was a seeker and I sought night and day. So now we have noble-minded man, rather than a sinner rebelling against God, deserving wrath, who's marvelously saved, we have noble-minded people who were doing the right thing, seeking God. There are seekers. You know who they are? No. Christians. (laughs) (laughs) Once God opens your heart through the gospel and the light goes on, that's when you begin seeking God. I was, was Paul seeking God before his conversion? No. Oh, he wanted to kill Christians, yes. Well, Cornelius um, was one of these people that was interested in the God of Israel. All right? He was called a God-fearer. Now, that was a category, that was an actual category of people. And what the God-fearers were, were people who liked the monotheism. They liked the moral law of Israel. And they believed in monotheism, in the God of Israel. But they didn't want to become proselytes because that required circumcision and keeping Sabbath and keeping the food laws. And so these God-fearers were, in a sense, like Jews. They believed in the God of the Bible. Now, god What's that? Yes. But anyhow, this whole thing with Cornelius was that Peter was to go preach the gospel, even though he would have considered this guy unclean because he isn't kosher, so we had the vision. But what ultimately happens with is they're converted. So you would think that he was a seeker before his conversion? Well, and he had the Ethiopian eunuch was interested. But uh, God opens people's hearts and, uh, to the gospel. That's how, how I would say it. Right. Right. Um, you, you notice that when you go out on the streets preaching at these outreaches or wherever we go, you notice that every once in a while there'll be somebody who was, it was their time. And they just happen to be there and they. This guy that got saved out of the Kmart parking lot just happened to be walking out of the building when the gospel was going out over the loudspeakers, and he was half of, three quarters of a block away. And he came out, and he was just apprehended. And he came over and found the nearest, who's a pastor around here? And they pointed to somebody, and he said, I, I, I need this. Well, it was his time. <laughs> and that's, that's all the more reason to put it out. Now, see, in Peter's case... God knew that Cornelius was ready, that he was going to save Cornelius, but nobody was willing to preach to him unless God did something to change it, because they wouldn't go to this unclean person. Without an actual work of God. And you know, by the way, Wesley would even agree with that, by the way. Uh, remember I quoted Wesley 
in my article on means of grace. And they used to have a term they call provenient grace. Um, and provene, to provene is to go before in Old English. And so Wesley even said, go sit yourself under the means of grace because who knows when God's preventing grace might come to you and save you. Now, that's why the King James confuses people, by the way, because prevent now means to stop. It's the total opposite of what it used to mean. Yes. Well, I would have to say that we, in Cornelius' case, he wouldn't have been regenerated until he heard the gospel. God did a work of grace in his heart to open him to the gospel. We know that. I, yeah, God does it. Yeah, we may not know the time. I think sometimes people are regenerate, and then they later come and say, "I, you know, make a formal confession and um, they're baptized." God touched their heart. Sometimes through a little bitty thing. The, uh, it, the the article that I just published on redefining the church, I talk about that. The God is so gracious and merciful, even with kind of a dim, diffused light. He will save people. You could you could pick up a hymn that had the words of the gospel in. You could be sitting in a liturgical church that the pastor doesn't believe in the resurrection. The pastor will never preach the gospel, and there's and you'll never read a gospel tract because they wouldn't let one into the church. But they might have an old favorite hymn in their liturgy that has the gospel in it, and someone could believe and be saved. Amen. All right. Now, the reason I wrote that in the article is to say that's not to justify having pastors that don't believe in the resurrection. You can say, yeah, we have a pastor who doesn't believe in the resurrection, and somebody was saved in that church. Well, that's God's grace. That's not saying it's a good thing to not believe in the resurrection. Um, <laughs> in spite of, God may save people in spite of us. What, what, what else? people that are, all of us need to realize and think about is what did God tell us to do that he ordained by which he will change people's lives. And then let's do that. Not just look around and say, well, like I have always said, well, I know somebody that got saved at the, the movie The Exorcist. And, and I do. But I, I heard somebody says somebody, they got saved going to the movie The Exorcist. Yeah. He gives them a pattern. Yeah, there's a pattern. So we need to follow the pattern, not say, well, God could use this or that. I don't care what God could use. I want to know what He ordained. God will take care of what He can use. It's our job to do what He told us to do. Does that make sense? All right. Um, to, the sermon is going to be on Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11 at uh, 1030. Until then, we have a time of fellowship, but I see that there's some donuts and coffee, so help yourself. <laughs>